Scripture reading this evening will be read from James 1, verses 12 through 16. James 1, verses 12 through 16. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has approved, for when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Good evening. We're glad that you're here tonight. We're always thankful for the opportunity to be together. Tonight we're going to be talking about temptation. Before we do so, I want to mention that we had a great number that came to take part in the singing this afternoon. I'm not sure how many we had by way of representation here or from here, but we did have a good number. And uh, I was talking to Billy just a minute ago and I was thinking about this earlier. We often talk about how we are cultivating soon to be preachers and we have preachers in waiting. And it occurred to me this afternoon, we've got some song leaders in waiting. We've got some guys that can lead singing. And I was very proud. I know Billy was too. I told Billy, Billy took a seat and was like a maestro over there conducting these guys leading singing. But it was really, it was really encouraging to see the talent that our young guys have in song leading. And we've got some guys here that can preach, they can teach. And before you know it, Brother Billy, they're going to have our jobs. Amen. And that's a good thing. And we look forward to that. Because it would, I think it would be, I think it'd be great if there were some guys one day from this congregation standing in this pulpit every week leading singing and preaching the word. It'd be a great, great, it'd be a great, I think it'd be a great compliment to this church. We're going to be looking tonight at James chapter 1 verses 12 through 16, the passage that was read just a moment ago. And I want us to talk for a minute or two about dealing with temptation. All of us, whether young or old, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, we all deal with temptation. It should not be lost on us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not exempt from temptation. The Hebrew writer tells us that he was tempted in all points like as we, and yet we know that he remained sinless. He never gave in. He never succumbed to the overtures of Satan. So how do we as the people of God withstand? How do we deal with temptation as it comes our way on a regular basis? I want us to look at these verses that are set forth in James chapter 1 that I believe deal with temptation and how temptation unfolds. And so the first thing I want us to do is talk about the blame in temptation. When we talk about the blame in temptation, there are many people that surmise how temptation comes about, who's responsible for temptation. And as we look at James chapter 1 in verse 13, there is what might be called a false accusation regarding temptation. 
Here's, here's what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. The blame game. That, that's really what we're talking about here. Individuals typically, typically try to assign blame to someone for their temptation. There have been individuals in days gone by that have accused God of being the culprit in temptation. Let me give you an example. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. You recall Adam and Eve transgressed the law of God. God had said they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, we read of the serpent, the devil, coming on the scene. And first of all, he beguiled or deceived Mother Eve. And then she gave of that forbidden fruit to Adam, and he likewise partook, thereby sinning. And so when God called out to Adam, he asked a very simple question. Have you eaten from the tree which I've told you not to eat? How did Adam respond? He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me gave me from the tree. What did he try to do? Shift the blame. And by way of implication, I think what you, could, what, what you can say is he was ultimately accusing God of being responsible for succumbing to sin. And so there are a lot of people that have tried to assign blame to someone other than the devil. And according to James here in James chapter 1 verse 13, he's talking about someone who would have the false misconception that God's responsible for temptation. That's not the case at all. Well then, who is the foe? and author of temptation. Who's the culprit? Well, the Bible says that the devil is responsible for temptation. We read about the work of the devil in the Old and New Testaments. The New Testament provides us with a graphic overview of his work. The devil has been at work since the Garden of Eden. If you look at Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter would say, be sober, be vigilant, your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Let me just cite for you some things that the devil does by way of trying to undermine our faith in the Lord. Number one, the devil tempts. I mentioned a moment ago that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not exempt from temptation. In the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew, we find the devil coming to Jesus and setting before him a series of temptations, three to be exact. He began by saying, if you are the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now in chapter four, verse one, Matthew tells us that the devil is the tempter. He tempted Jesus. He tempted the first couple in the Garden of Eden. He tempts us today. A second thing that the devil does, he blinds. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, at verse 4, the Bible tells us 
that the devil is the God of this world. As the God of this world, he blinds the minds of them which believe not. How many times have you heard individuals talk about spiritual matters? And there is a clear distinction in scripture of what is right and wrong. And they will say, I just can't see it. They're blinded to the truth. Well, who's responsible for that? The devil is. And then thirdly, the devil is the one who deceives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 at verse 3, the apostle Paul takes us back to the Garden of Eden. And he speaks in that context of Eve, who was deceived or beguiled by the devil. The devil deceives many people. And really, he is no respecter of persons when it comes to his deceptive practices. There is a fourth thing that the devil does. The Bible tells us he ensnares. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 7, the apostle Paul talks about the qualifications of those who would serve as elders in the Lord's church. And he said that one of the qualifications is that an elder is not to be a novice in the faith lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the snare of the devil. And so the devil is constantly at work trying to ensnare people. There is a fifth thing that scripture tells us the devil does. That is, he takes people captive. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, Again, the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, his own son in the faith, speaks of the servant of God, one who is trying to restore someone who has been led astray from the faith. And he talks about how people in that situation or under those circumstances have been taken captive by the devil to do his will in verse 26. And really that's what the devil does. He takes people captive. He binds them in prison. And so we talk about blame in temptation. But I want you to think with me in the second place of being baited by temptation. The devil is very, is very wise. And by that I mean he understands that there are a lot of things that can be used to allure people, to capture them, to ensnare them, to deceive them, to tempt them, to blind them. The devil does not use just one means of temptation, but there are many means of temptation employed by the devil. Now as we think about temptation and the design of temptation, sometimes people will ask the question, what is the design of temptation? Why would the devil be interested in tempting me as a member of the human family, as a child of God? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, he is intent on deceiving you. And number two, his desire is to destroy you. That's the bottom line. He wants to deceive and destroy. And he will go on trying to deceive and destroy people until the end of time. So having said that, let's look, if you would, at verses 13 through 15. 
In verse 13 again, James said, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires or own lust and enticed. Then when desire or lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then he said, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So here you have the steps articulated by James, beginning with temptation and culminating with sin. So what about the deceptive practices of the devil? We talk about the devil wanting to deceive us. What are the means, what are the tools, the techniques that he uses to deceive us today? Let me just cite for you three things, and there are a lot of tools that the devil uses to deceive, disrupt the lives of people. He has been at work since the Garden of Eden. His work will culminate at the end of time when God will literally cast him into eternal destruction. The Bible tells us he has a date with destiny, that being the lake of fire, the fire that burns with or rather the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. First of all, I believe he uses the appeal of the world. Have you ever thought about how strong the appeal of the world is? Now John would tell us in 1 John chapter 2, love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life are not of the Father but are of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of the Father abides forever. Here's what I want you to see. Satan appeals to us in a number of ways through the world. If we're going to be able to overcome the devil, one of the things we have to do, we have to understand how he operates. What's the old saying, know your enemy? Well, Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 at verse 11, said, we're not ignorant of the devices of Satan lest he gain advantage over us. So what we need to do is understand how he operates. We need to know his tactics, the bait that he uses. Well, he uses a number of different kinds of bait. One of the baits used by the devil the appeal of the world. Let me just cite for you some things that I believe would fall under this heading. I would encourage you to go back and look at the book of Ecclesiastes because in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about his quest and really he is on a quest for the meaning of life and he provides insight into his own life. In chapter one at verse 12, Solomon said in the long ago, that he was king over Israel. Now we know that he, that he ultimately took the place of his father on the throne of Israel. But he said he was the king. What, what does it mean to be the king? What does it mean to be the president? Let me tell you what it means. Power. Power can be intoxicated. The devil can use power to destroy you and to destroy me. I remember several years ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with a friend of mine 
who had served as, well, he had been in the House of Representatives in the state of Tennessee. And I remember we were eating at Piccadilly one day. And he was talking about when he first went into office, and he is a very successful businessman, he along with his other brothers. But he said, when he got to Nashville, and he said, when other legislators get to Nashville, he said, you wouldn't believe the things that are thrown at you. He said, what, what people want to know is this. What is it you're after? Is it alcohol? Is it money? Is it, is it women? What is it that will make you happy? Well, here's a person in a position of power. And there are a lot of people that because of power, power can go to people's heads. And sometimes, as I said a moment ago, it's so intoxicating that people lose sight of right and wrong. There are a lot of guys in the penitentiary right now. They have been in positions of power, but they abused those positions of power. That's just one example. And then in that same in that same text, in verse 16 of chapter 1, Solomon said he had attained greatness. Here is a man of immense prestige or prominence. When you said the name Solomon, everyone knew who you were talking about. You remember the Queen of Sheba? What did she do? She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Well, there are a lot of folks that have become famous They've made a name for themselves, and guess what? It destroyed them. A friend of mine who was a gospel preacher talked about a young lady who is now a very famous entertainer. Her father was a song leader, and she became what we would call an overnight sensation to some extent. She's on the radio, been on television, but something happened to her faith. You can become famous and live a Christian life, but there are a lot of people that have become famous. They have become very prominent in the world in which we live, and they've lost their faith. So we have to understand, this is one of the tools employed by the devil. There's a third thing that Solomon cites in chapter 2. He talks about pleasure. Let me ask this question. Is sin fun? Let me answer that. You better believe it. There are a lot of things about living in sin that are fun. How do I know that? Because I've been there. I know there are a lot of things that you can do that you can, you can, you can have a lot of pleasure. You can be gratified in a lot of different ways. But let me ask this question. The pleasures of sin, how long will they last? The Hebrew writer said they are but for a season. What the devil wants you, what he wants you to buy into is, hey, you need to forget about this Christianity stuff. You need to forget about God. You need to forget about the Bible. What you need to do is indulge yourself. Live in pleasure. I mean, after all, you only go around life once. Live it up. Enjoy yourself. You want to drink? Drink. You want to smoke dope? Smoke dope. 
You want to live a life of promiscuity? Hey, do that too. Nothing wrong with that. Look, look if you would at the advertisements. Advertisers in our country are good at what they do. I saw this afternoon an advertisement for alcohol and they make it look so appealing. They make it look like if you'll do that, you'll have a ball. But they don't tell you the flip side of it, do they? They never tell you about the countless numbers of people that have been the victims of automobile accidents. They don't ever tell you about the mothers and fathers that buried their children or the children that buried their parents. They never tell you about the people that were eaten up with cirrhosis of the liver. They don't tell you those things. They don't want you to know that. That's how the devil operates. He doesn't want you to see the bad. He wants, to, he wants you to see the glamour, the glitz, the good times, the happy times, the pleasures. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2 at verse 10, Solomon said, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep or withhold from them. All Solomon was saying was this, Whatever I wanted, I got it. If it made me happy, if it brought, if it brought a sense of pleasure to my life, guess what? I'm all in. Well, you and I, we need to understand that Satan uses the appeal of the world. There is a second thing that I believe Satan uses, and that is our associations in the world. One of the things that we have to understand right up front is we need to make the right kind of friendships. If we run with good people, Christian people, chances are we're going to live a good life and we're going to live a Christian life. If we run with the devil's crowd, it's going to be tough to live a Christian life. Somebody says it'll never happen to me. Let me give you a couple of examples. I mentioned just a moment ago Solomon. Go back and read the Old Testament. Do you remember what was said about Solomon marrying pagan wives? What did they do? They turned his heart away from Almighty God. There is power in our association. The devil understands that. And so what the devil wants to do, he wants to put you in the company of bad people. And then I think about Jezebel. Remember her? In the Old Testament, who did she marry? A fellow by the name of King Ahab. And if I'm not mistaken, she had a tremendous influence on King Ahab. And let me tell you what kind of life he lived. He was rotten to the core. And she was rotten to the core. She probably one-upped him in rottenness and wickedness. But she had a tremendous influence in his life. And then there was a man by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh was king over the southern kingdom. And the Bible tells us that Manasseh seduced or influenced the children of Israel to do evil in the sight of Almighty God. Manasseh's father was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good man, but Manasseh was a bad guy. And you know what he did? He influenced a lot of other people to live 
in a way that was antagonistic to the will of God. All I'm saying is the devil can use un, unwholesome, unhealthy relationships to undermine our faith. That's why I think it's so important for our young people to be together, to spend time together, to work together, to have fun together, to be together, to eat together, because there is value in Christian fellowship. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Be not deceived. Evil companionship corrupts good morals. Here's what Solomon said in Proverbs 1 at verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So, that's a second way that the devil seeks to deceive people. Let me give you a third way that he seeks to deceive. The applause of the world. We are living in a culture, in a society today where people are trying to make it hard on us to live a Christian life. It seems as if Christianity and the Word of God are under persecution. The goal of many in our nation, the goal of many in our world is to eradicate Christian influence. Well, what is it the devil would like to do? He'd like to use the philosophies of men. He would like to use those who are trying to undermine Christian values to our detriment. Let me give you an example. Over in John chapter 12, the Bible tells us in John chapter 12 at verse 42 that among the rulers, many believed in Jesus. So here were people that had the opportunity to see firsthand Jesus Christ in the flesh. No doubt they had seen him, they had heard him, they were impressed by all that he was, and he was and is today the divine son of God. So they believed in Jesus as the son of God. But John tells us, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess him. Why was that? Lest they be put out of the synagogue. You see, they had to worry about their standing. It might be the case that one of the things the devil does is that he tempts us, he tries to deceive us by the applause of the world. Somebody says, you're not a Christian, are you? What do we say? In John chapter 12 at verse 43, John said that those who refused to acknowledge the Christ, the reason they did not acknowledge him because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. We talk about the applause of the world. It, it may be the case that one day it's difficult for us to stand up and speak out as children of God because who knows? We may be ver verbally persecuted. We might be physically persecuted. We don't know. But Satan can use that to undermine our faith. Now, not only does the devil want to deceive, but he wants to destroy. We have to understand that. We need to understand right up front, the devil is intent on destroying our faith. So, look if you would at verse 15. In verse 15, here's what James said, when lust or desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth what? 
brings forth death. What's he talking about there? Separation from God. What is it the devil's trying to do? He's trying to drive a wedge between God and me. He's trying to destroy my relationship with the Lord. So what does that mean? I have to protect that relationship. I have to understand that the devil's trying to make advances in my life. He is the enemy. What's he trying to do? He's trying to surround me. He's trying to undermine me. He's trying to destroy my life. That's why I have to be vigilant. Remember what Peter said, be vigilant, be sober. Why? Because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So, the devil not only wants to destroy, but he wants to deceive. And he's done a good job at it through the years. Thirdly, how do we beat temptation? How do we bear temptation? We know it's coming. We're tempted every day. I don't know of anybody that's not tempted. We're all tempted. We're all in this thing together. We face it day in, day out. Doesn't matter if we live in America. Doesn't matter if we live overseas. Wherever the case may be, we find ourselves in the cauldron of temptation. So how do we deal with that? How do we overcome? Well, we overcome by being steadfast. Listen, if you would, to what James said in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You know it's coming. You know how the devil operates. And so what, what James is saying, and James is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's simply saying this. Do not give in. Don't be deceived. All right, let me give you some practical ways that we can overcome temptation. Let me give you five ways. Number one, resist temptation. It's the old adage, just say no. Remember what James said in chapter 4, verse 7? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Just because you're successful today resisting the devil, though, doesn't mean he's not coming back. If we go back and look at Luke, Luke's account of the temptations posed to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, of course, successfully defended himself against the devil. In about verse 13, the Bible said that the devil left him until an opportune time. All Luke was saying there is the devil was going to leave him alone, but guess what? He's coming back. The devil, he's not going to give up. Just because we win today, just because we win tomorrow, doesn't mean he's going to pack it in and say, guess what? I can't do anything with that person. I'm going to leave him alone. He won't leave you alone until you're six feet under. So we have to resist temptation. Number two, we need to realize that there is, an, that there is a way of escape when confronted with temptation. Is that not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 at verse 13? That he will, with the temptation, make also a way of escape? We come to a crossroad. We can go this way or this way. We can turn to the right. We can turn to the left. We can choose to do right. We can choose to do evil. We can say yes to truth. We can say yes to error. What are we going to do? The choice is ours. And all Paul is saying by inspiration is, look, God will give you a choice. We are free moral agents. In other words, we are people of volition. We have the opportunity to make choices. We make them every day. 
Sometimes people say, well, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you to do it. He didn't make you do it. The devil doesn't make anybody sin. He just sets you up to sin. The devil's the one that tempts. We say yes or no. It's all on us. But we need to understand, look, there is, there is a way out of this thing. We just have to make the right choice. We have to see, we have to see that there is a choice that will enable us to overcome. And then thirdly, remember that scripture is a great tool in times of temptation. The psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 11, your word have I laid up in my heart that I might not sin against you. When Jesus was confronted by the devil, you remember what he said in Matthew chapter four, verse four, when he was commanded to turn stones into bread? It is written. Three times Jesus responded to the temptations posed to him by saying, it is written. Let me tell you what, there is no premium you can put on knowing this book. This book right, right here will be your friend. You ought to make it your friend because it will help you overcome temptation. It will give you the, it will give you the knowledge to discern between, as the Hebrew writer said, good and evil. You'll know right from wrong. You'll understand the difference between truth and error. You need to know this book. You need to know it inside out. You need to spend time with it every day. You need to meditate on this book day and night as the psalmist of old did in Psalm 1 at verse 2. Fourthly, when temptation comes calling, here's what we need to do. Refuse. We need to refuse to leave the door open in times of temptation. You ever heard somebody say, he or she slammed the door off the hinges? Man, I've been in the car when Braden has slammed the door and I thought the whole car was going to flip over. Like, whoom! Well, when it comes to temptation, we do not need to gently shut the door. What we need to do is slam the door. Slam it closed. Here's what, here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. Neither give place to the devil. Do not give him an opportunity. Do not let him put his foot inside your house. Do not let him get a foothold in your life. Let me tell you what. If he gets a foothold in your life, he's coming in. Once he gets his foot in the door, he is coming in. And so Paul is saying, look, what you need to do, you need to, you need to just shut him off. Let me give you an example of that. You remember back in Genesis chapter 39 when Joseph was confronted with temptation by Potiphar's wife? What was she trying to do? She was trying to get Joseph to compromise his faith in God. She wanted to have a sexual relationship with him. 
First and foremost, Joseph understood that if he did that, it would undermine the marriage of Potiphar and his wife. Secondly, he understood that if he did that, it would be wickedness in the eyes of God. If you read the text, you will see that she was a persistent lady, just like Satan. She kept calling. And so finally, what did Joseph do? When, when things culminated to a point where it could have been disaster for him, you know what he did? He ran, he fled. When you find yourself in a situation wherein you could compromise your faith, your morality, your belief system, here's what you need to do. You need to say, you need to refuse. You, ne you, need, to, you need to refuse to leave the door open in times of temptation. And then fifthly, Recognize that heaven is better than anything that the devil has to offer in temptation. I want to ask you this. How much, would, how much is your faith worth? What, what's the price tag of your faith? Let me ask this question. If you have the world on one side and heaven on the other side, which one wins out? The, those, are, those of us who are trying to live a Christian life, what we're saying is, look, there is nothing on planet Earth worth losing our soul for. Not one thing. When, when Moses was put to the test, the Bible tells us he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. For he looked for what? A reward. The Hebrew writer said he saw him who is invisible. There is something more to life than the here and now. The devil baits us with the here and now. What we have to understand is there is not one thing on planet earth that is worth losing our soul for. Nothing. Nothing. Not power. Not fame. Not money. There is, there's not a job on this earth worth your soul. There is not a degree offered by any university that is worth your soul. There is not a marriage that is worth your soul. And by that I mean you're a Christian, he or she is not a Christian, you marry them. In so doing, your faith unravels and you lose your soul. Let me ask you this, was it worth it? Absolutely not. Jesus asked this question, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Dealing with temptation. It's here. I got news for you. It's here to stay. What we've got to do is rise above it. 
Now James said, blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to them that love him. If we stay faithful and true, and we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have the assurance that the blood of Christ is working daily in our lives. So, let's be faithful. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we encourage you to come to Christ, believing that he is the Son of God, John 8, 24. Why not be baptized into Christ so that every sin could be washed away? Acts 2, verse 38. In Christ, you'll enjoy all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3. You'll have the quality of life that's defined as eternal, 1 John 2, 25. And if you're faithful until death, the promise is that crown of life, that's Stephanos, the victor's crown. Would you come as we stand and sing?